Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. The following activity, titled Infertility, Current Testing, and Treatment Methods, was recorded at Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit. Your host is Dr. Andrea Singer. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, infertility affects over 6 million women in the United States. There are many options available for the couple with infertility in terms of treatments, and even if you're not a reproductive endocrinologist, there is much that you can do for the infertile couple that you might see in the office. I'm Dr. Andrea Singer, and joining me is Dr. Stephen Cohen, faculty at SUNY Upstate Medical School in Syracuse, New York, and today we'll be discussing infertility. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the program. Thank you. To start, can you provide the current definition of infertility as it relates to women's age, and then give us a sense of when providers should start thinking about starting an evaluation? The definition of infertility hasn't really changed over decades and decades, and the value is having unprotected intercourse, exposed to becoming pregnant for a 12-month period of time, because that was convenient to, to know that. So the definition has remained the same. What's changed is when we begin to work people up, regardless of what the definition is. And age impacts it because if you're under 35, then we usually wait the year. Because most patients, 85% of couples, will conceive a pregnancy within the year if they wait. You've all had the patient that said, comes in and it says infertility on the schedule, and you say, well, how long have you been having intercourse, unprotected intercourse, they said, well, last month, and I'm not pregnant. What's wrong? You know? So we've all had that, but basically we ask them to wait a year. If they want a workup before that, obviously we'll, we'll do what they ask sometimes. Um, if they're 35 or older, we start working up at six months, and everybody does now, so that because we know that old biological clock is ticking and we don't want them to waste Time. What history evaluation or testing is recommended uh, before referring the patient to a fertility specialist? In other words, what should we be able to do and would be appropriate for us to do in the office before we send them to you? That's an interesting question. It all depends on who you are and what you do and what you like to do. So we're not saying in any way that you all should work up the infertile patient. If you're just not comfortable working up or don't have the time or for whatever reason, you don't want to work them up. But if you'd like to work some of these patients up, it's, it's very easy. For infertility, the science of infertility is incredibly complex. The clinical practice of infertility is relatively easy and a lot of common sense. So everybody can really get involved who's any sort of provider at all. And so basically, it all starts with the history. And most of the time, like a good quarterback, you can tell what to do before you call the play just by looking to see what's happening. By the time you finish the history, you have a pretty good idea what the cause might, might be. We've gone so far from testing, sometimes we lost the ability to talk to the patient. There was a tombstone down Cape Cod that gave the guys date of birth and date of death, and underneath it said, see, I told you I was sick. So we need to listen to the patient to hear what they're saying. So we asked them things like, um, well, how long has this been going on for? How long have you not been able to conceive? Someone who says, geez, I've, I, I haven't used contraception in the last 10 years and I haven't gotten pregnant. Ah, maybe something wrong. <laughs> okay. 
But if it's the last 10 minutes, maybe not so much, okay? And then we ask them, have they been pregnant before? Because if they've been pregnant before and nothing dramatic has happened, that's a better history than if they, oh, I've never, never been pregnant. You don't know what their fertility status is. We ask them uh, about contraception. We ask them about their coital history. You know, if they have a menstrual period every month, but they have intercourse every year, it could be a problem. Okay, so coital history is important. Medical problems, obviously you all know that. You know, thyroid disease, et cetera. Previous surgeries, allergy meds, et cetera. The smoking and drinking. So that's the, the history that you can almost know what you're going to find in these patients. Are there testing that, that should be done? Let me tell you about some of the things that have changed. Because a lot's changed over the last 40 years about what we did. We used to do a basal body temperature, BBT, okay? And now there's an app for that, obviously, and you can see the little rabbit jump around when it gets near fertile time and then go down. And we used to have them take their base, don't get out of bed, put your thermometer in your mouth, read your temperature, record it every morning, and watch it. It should be biphasic. It drops, that's when you ovulate, it goes up, and that's when after ovulation. If you do that, you're probably ovulating. Well, I think that help some people get get pregnant and probably hurt 10 times more people trying to get pregnant because everybody waited for the temperature to go up because they didn't see the drop. You can't see the drop until the temperature goes up. And it would be like, how do I get to the stop? And you'd say, well, watch where I get off the bus and then get off the stop before me. Uh, okay, how do I know that? So we don't do BBTs anymore. What else don't we do? Post-coital tests. We don't do post-coital tests anymore, very, with rare exceptions. So the patient, we used to say, go home, have intercourse, come on in, and we're going to check your mucus and make sure the sperm is swimming in that cervical mucus. We don't do that anymore because it's, it doesn't really help us, and we're probably going to bypass the cervical mucus. What about the endometrial biopsy? For those of you that know the journal Fertility and Sterility, the most read OBGYN journal of all, the lead article in the very first edition was the endometrial biopsy for luteal phase defect. We don't do that anymore. It was inconsistent, it wasn't helpful, and it didn't predict who was going to get pregnant. And what about the gold standard, laparoscopy? Every, when I was a resident, if you were infertile, we got a laparoscopy, automatic, to look for endometriosis or pelvic adhesion. Well, endometriosis may not cause that much infertility, and treating it may not help at all. But basically, so laparoscopy has gone from doing everybody to doing two-thirds of the patients to doing one-third of the patients, and it's falling rapidly. So we really don't often do laparoscopy in the patient who has a normal exam, normal ultrasound, even though she may have stage one or two endometriosis. So what do we do? Because now we've eliminated about everything we used to do. So we do labs. Let's make sure their basic labs are normal. Just targeted labs, and those would be CBC, CMP, thyroid prolactin, maybe an FSH in these patients. We always get an offer or try to get a semen analysis because you never know who's got sperm and who doesn't have sperm, and even those who had a vasectomy but their partner doesn't know they've had a vasectomy. We've seen that on occasion. And we do a histogram usually on these patients to make sure they have patent fallopian tubes. And that's basically the first stage you work up. You can do all that in your office, most of that. You can order the semen analysis, get the labs. The rest, we're not doing much anymore. So what therapies and treatments can be offered to the patient uh, that all of us might be able to do before we refer to a reproductive endocrinologist? Well, the first thing you want to do is sort of decide, are they ovulating or aren't they ovulating? Once you know the semen analysis is normal and either you know the tubes are open or not, are they ovulating 
or aren't they ovulating? If they're not ovulating, you have a period, sometimes it's a month, sometimes it's four months, you know she's probably not ovulating. So you want to make that first decision right there. If they're ovulating, that's another interesting area we can get into if we have time, but basically if they're not ovulating, you want them to ovulate, girls, without, without question. And how do you get them to ovulate? Well, basically you can use a drug, you can use clomiphene, and basically it's 50 milligrams, and the package insert will say days five through seven of the menstrual cycle, and you can start them, if they have a period once a year, you can give them some progesterone withdrawal, start them on days three through seven, uh, it says five through nine on the package insert. You have them take it days five through seven, one tablet a day, 50 milligrams. It's dirt cheap. They almost give it away free. Okay, it's been around for 60 years. And it's incredibly safe, and usually will get them to ovulate. Now, once that happens, they start to ovulate. You can just watch. If you're in an office that doesn't have a lot of facility, doesn't have ultrasound, you can just watch and see if their cycles get to be monthly on that dose. If they do and they don't get pregnant, don't increase the dose. We don't increase the dose because they fail to conceive. We increase the dose if they fail to ovulate, okay? We usually get an ultrasound day 12 or 13. See if there's a follicle. If there's a follicle, they're probably going to ovulate it. You're looking for an easy ultrasound that every ultrasound tech in the world can do. You want a two centimeter follicle. 22 millimeters, somewhere in that range. And so if you're just a private office that doesn't have a lot of facility, isn't treating infertility patients, let them try that for a month or two, even with ultrasound each time you, you give it. If they don't ovulate, they don't form a follicle, nothing more than a centimeter, then up the dose, double it. Go to two tablets, days three through seven. Just get them to ovulate and see if it's, that's all they need. You could, if you wanted to, depending on your level that you wanted to get in this, have them prepare an intrauterine sperm sample in the lab for you, give it to you and slide a little catheter into the cervix and place it there at the time of ovulation. So you can do that too. So in the last minute or, or two, can you talk about perhaps the older patient um, who's getting concerned because of her age, but she's not ready to become pregnant yet? What options are out there for her in terms of preservation, so to speak? We've come a long way on what we do with the patient who's biological clock is ticking. The American Society of Reproductive Medicine, ASRM, has really made a push for the last five, six years on getting the information out there that you, you can't forestall pregnancy forever because it may not work eventually. Although they put a lot of money and effort into this, I haven't seen much change. So you get patients who are very knowledgeable and have followed this and are worried that they're not kind of pregnant, and then others who come in and they're like 47, and they say, gee, I think I'd like to get pregnant. And you say, hmm. You say, well, your eggs are not going to work too well. Well, what do you mean? I say, well, you're 47. And they say, and probably you see it even more out in California, but I look 25. <laughs> I have a personal trainer. I have six-pack abs. And I say, but your eggs, they're 47. <laughs> you know, and it comes like a shock to, to them. Look at all these movie stars, they're all having babies at 50. But they're not, their eggs. What? Who's eggs are they? I said, well, I don't know, but they're not her eggs. Okay, they're, they're donor eggs. 
You have to understand that, that the fertility dropped dramatically after 30, basically, 35. It starts to drop about 25% between the, the next five years and 47% after that, 78% after that. Now, we used to think, a lot of people think that if you draw an FSH level, days one through three of the cycle, and it's high, it correlates to not being able to get pregnant. Oh, you're, you got bad eggs. You know, they've been in the supermarket too long. They're too bad. You know, you know. So, and we used to then say, oh, wait, we got a better test than FSH. So we call that ovarian reserve. We got a better test. It's called AMH, anti-malarian hormone. AMH. That became the, the big thing the last five years because it's not day, cycle day dependent. You can draw it any day in the cycle. You don't have to have them come in. If the AMH is less than one or the FSH is more than 10, you get old eggs. Okay. It turns out not helpful. Not helpful for, it had nothing to do with conception. Who would get pregnant percentage-wise and who wouldn't. They did excellent studies on both of these drugs. What they do correlate with is your potential to get pregnant down the way, how many eggs you have left, and what your response is going to be when they shoot you with gonadotropins for an IVF cycle. You'll have many more eggs if you have good numbers for an IVF cycle, but it has nothing to do with the individual cycle and what, whether you're going to get pregnant or not. So we don't have a good test of the quality of the egg. We have two good tests on the number of eggs you're going to, you have left, but not on the quality of those eggs. Back to age. We, we just go on a pattern. This is the age. This is your percentage. This is going down. This is not only getting pregnant, but having a successful baby, so not a miscarriage or, or a termination, and then, of course, avoiding genetic defects in these infants as they age as well, which cause problems. So aging is extremely important, and we defer back to age with all the fancy tests we have, follicular counts and other things, and again, not time to get into, it goes back to age. It's your age. So lots of interesting thoughts. On that note, I'd like to thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cohn, for joining us today. This has been Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, provided in partnership with Omnia Education. Thank you for listening.